Hello and welcome to the Motion E podcast. I'm Stuart Garlick and today I'm joined by Ryan Eric King from the Motorsport 101 podcast crew. Um, obviously these podcasts are brought to you by the Motion E Patreon and thank you to all my Patreon subscribers for um, helping make this possible. And uh, if you go there then you get plenty of articles that you can't get on the regular website for free and um, also some uh, previews of interviews etc so anyway uh, ryan nice to speak to you and uh, before we start talking about new york city and the pre um it's a heat wave here how is the weather for you over there i'd say just about the same <laughs> it is it is truly summer here in new york city I'm pretty much having to uh, have the window open all day, regardless of what I'm doing. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm sure if anyone sat outside the window, then uh, they would um, they, they they would they would double my podcast audience. But uh, there we are. Um, but nice to nice to hear from you. And of course, you were you were at Brooklyn uh, Docks for the um, EPRI last weekend. So. For those of us who only see it on the TV, obviously they make a big thing of those Manhattan views. But uh, what actually is the dock area of Brooklyn of Brooklyn like as a as a place to go for a race? Oh, I'd say it's strange. You do get the views of Manhattan on the other side of the bay, uh, though it is very it is very isolated from the rest of the city. There is the bare minimum of public transportation in Red Hook, Brooklyn. It's only one bus route that goes to Red Hook. But due to the traffic on race day, there might as well not be a bus route. So, uh, generally speaking, uh, those who can afford it get a taxi from the hotel then? Yes, yes. Okay. And um, what was the atmosphere like? I, I would imagine uh, with... Obviously, COVID precautions needing to be followed. Everyone was um, uh, sticking swabs up various areas all day, weren't they? Uh, no. So there was essentially two bubbles that couldn't interact with each other. There was the official Formula E bubble with uh, with the teams, uh, s staff, media, and... Uh, attendees in the Emotion Club, and then there was the public bubble, which was located uh, outside the First Sector Complex, which had two grandstands, and in that bubble, pretty much, you didn't have to be tested to get in. Um, and you didn't have to be tested to get in, but they also didn't start selling tickets to the last moment and i use the term sell loosely as in tickets were given away for free just to try to fill up the grandstand okay so um actually it was even less popular than maybe the organizers had hoped well it's it's hard to sell out a grandstand when uh you make the tickets available the wednesday before the race yeah, and of course, this is going to be a problem for all kinds of sports with uh, with um, America coming out of COVID and the rest of the world not coming out of it, I think. Yes, where the, uh, the potential audience is very limited, where it was pretty much you had to be uh, not only American, but it seemingly you had to live decently close to the circuit. Yeah, and um, it, it's it's quite often quite jarring when I listen to American podcasts, which I, I do on my walks and in the evening, and uh, th there will always be a commercial that says something like, uh, as we reach the finish line of the COVID pandemic, we'll all be thinking about how we need to be kind in the new normal. And I'm thinking, well, um, good for them, I guess. Uh, I, I think those ads are a bit more optimistic than than the situation actually is. In some places here, like the city of New York, uh, we are at a vaccination rate of roughly 70%, which is really good, but it's not 100, and there are still cases. Uh, so, we're, we're, I would say we're approaching the finish line, but nothing guarantees that we're going to cross said finish line. 
So just talk us through your weekend, because uh, obviously you were in the media centre, you were there with journalists, photographers, video makers. So uh, how did you structure your day and uh, what um, what kinds of uh, content were you trying to get? Uh, what kinds of questions were you asking, for example, drivers and staff while you were there? Uh, well, the thing is you're somewhat isolated in terms of where you can and can't go within the bubble. They try to limit interaction as much as possible. So outside of the press conferences and the media pens, you can't really interact with uh, people from the teams that much. Um, it's pretty much mainly email. I see. Uh, but s- still good to be there and um, good good to good to good to see the electro drama boys um, 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 up close again I would imagine yes uh, like they can they can isolate you from uh, <laughs> from the teams but they can't isolate you from the track absolutely and um, uh, for, for anyone who uh, hasn't been to Formula E um, obviously it seems fairly quiet on TV but it really doesn't matter. When you get up close to a car, it's phenomenal, regardless of how much noise it is or it isn't making. And uh, actually, the the pitch of the motor, I think, um, which is the thing that m- most Formula E haters consistently complain about, for me, is what makes it special and makes it dramatic. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I would say that it, it does have a certain quality to it where it... It has an inherently futuristic sounding noise where it, it it sounds what you assume like some science fiction spacecraft would sound like. Absolutely. So, um New York race one and um that was uh that that was won by uh Maximilian Gunter, um who um we've we've said before is uh, um, has been an inconsistent driver and um, until this season he had a record that suggested that either he would retire from the race in a collision or he would win or finish on the podium that was generally his record uh, give or take a few a few outlier results um, he and uh, Jake Dennis have been showing a lot more consistency recently in the results that they're getting and in simply being able to bring it home without without contact and without major incidents Um Obviously, he pulled off that great double overtake with a few laps to go before the finish, um, and um, that was that was the reason why he went through to win. But it was just generally a well-crafted race from him. D- did it show to you some kind of increased maturity from him? Yeah, especially especially the way he took the race lead showed a level of maturity considering that it was someone else's error that left the door open for him he he drove a solid race he put himself in a position to win and when the opportunity arose he he took it and succeeded and it's i i would somewhat compare it to uh super speedway racing in in nascar here in the states where people say it's you know so much based on luck while many a driver tell you there's a certain skill to being able to find yourself in the right place at the right time and staying out of trouble and you know taking advantage of the opportunity when it arises and uh, in fact, it was an error by uh, Jean-Éric Verne, um, which opened up the lead to Gunter. Um, uh, but I say error. I mean, um, he, uh, <laughs> he 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 was tr- he was trying to pass for the lead, and Gunter managed to get past uh, himself and uh, Nick Casty. So, um, an amazing racing, and uh, well done from Gunter. But. Actually, that race was also a uh, return to the upper reaches of the standings for Vern. And after the race, he talked a little bit um, in the press conference about what he considers important for uh, for a title challenge. Uh, because obviously the last title he won was season five when he didn't lead the title race until the uh, second half of the season. So he talked about uh, having a no mistakes policy from now on. Um, We'll talk about that later about race two, but he also talked about needing to take advantage of uh, group one qualifying because, as he said, 
you know, quite naturally, the driver leading the championship into the final race is going to be in Group 1, so they will have to make the best out of a bad situation. Um, but all of these little random elements in Formula E, or all of these elements that um, negatively reinforce success, are part of what makes it exciting to watch. And um, I, I think... Having the attack mode zone, having lots of different overtaking places and a few slower speed corners on every circuit. These are all really important things for making sure the racing is good, aren't they? Yes, because uh, it, it, I understand to a lot of people how it feels unnatural and somewhat unfair, but it, it's meant to keep the competition close. This is not, say, professional tennis, say at Wimbledon, where... If you're one of the seated players, you start your opening you start your opening round match against an unseated player to naturally make it easy easier for you. Uh, I'm glad that formally go in the opposite direction where if if you're doing well, things are just a little bit more difficult for you. Absolutely. And um some some impressive drives though down the field um nick cassidy obviously finished fourth uh but he had a very good race weekend through, throughout the new york weekend in, t in terms of his overall pace and in, t in terms of his qualifying pace and um in indeed he he qualified on pole position for that race and um he's showing some real improvements and uh, i i think there were some questions, obviously, as there always are, with a driver coming into Formula E from another formula, but he showed his brilliance many times with Toyota in Japan and um, in, in Super Formula and in, in, in Super GT. And after a couple of races of adaptation, he just seems to have transferred fairly seamlessly. Does that surprise you at all? Uh, I, I'd say... I'd say... It doesn't surprise me, though uh, it's 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 sort of at that crossover point where you expect the drivers who will adjust. This is the point where they have adjusted, where we're just past halfway through uh, through the season, and it's we've run enough races that if you don't understand the style of racing by now, you're probably never going to. And of course, in, in recent memory, we have seen drivers who have never fully understood uh, the way to race effectively in Formula E. Um, F Felipe Massa even um, admitted as much in his final interview in Berlin. So uh, uh, it, it is something that uh, some very competent drivers just never get their head around, isn't it? Yes, where uh, I still remember in his rookie season, Pascal Verline told me that uh, that formerly was nothing like uh, was comparable to nothing he's ever raced before. Where uh, it just the way you have to think about racing is fundamentally different to literally everything you've driven before, from karting to F1 to DTM. It is a truly unique form of motorsport. <laughs> I, I think that there are big differences, um, obviously, between Formula E and um, any other form of, form of formula racing. But I was thinking that in the majority of sort of longer form racing formulae, um, you can you can plan a race and you can, if you work really hard at it and um, if you are aware of your surroundings, have a clean race. Uh, it's possible to go through, for example, an entire six-hour sports car race without making contact with a single car um, and, um, and have a very competitive result. But Formula E, it, it's always seemed to me to be very on the hoof. So unless you're starting from pole and you can somehow have, have a clean race from start to finish and hit attack mode at exactly the right time, you're always going to either be put into a wall or onto a curb um, which damages part of the car or be run into by somebody at some point. And I can imagine that's immensely frustrating for people who pride themselves on coming home with a clean car. Yes, where the style of racing is truly close quarters, whether it be the walls of the circuit itself, but I'd say it's mainly down to you're almost always within arm's reach of another driver. There's 
there's rarely a moment in Formula E where you're more than two seconds separated from anyone else. And um, another driver I wanted to bring up who had a fantastic race, well, two in fact, um, Sam Bird and Rene Rast finished ninth and 10th in that race and doesn't sound like great shakes. However, um, Bird started 20th, Rast started 22nd and on lap one, Rast was down in 24th. He, he was he was the last place driver um, and um, they rose up to ninth and 10th and for, for both of them, I, I mean, there were some dramatic overtakes from Bird, but with, with Rast, he manages to make even the most dramatic things seem undramatic. And I, I've talked about this with other people on the podcast as well. Maybe that's why he floated under the radar in spite of being a multiple DTM champion. But for, for me, he's been one of the drivers of the season because he just seems to be able to find space where others can't. Kind of like a motorsporting Thomas Muller, if you like. He seems to be able to find the place on the track where he's not going to get into trouble. And I just wonder, uh, do you have any insight as to why he might be so good at that? Uh, I, I don't particularly know exactly why, though Rene has admittedly been on my radar. Like anyone who listens to Motorsport 101... Uh, Rene Rass was actually my pick to win the championship at the start of the season. Uh, and it's still it's still possible. He's still mathematically in it. Hmm. Uh, but Rene Rass is a very, very adaptable driver. He, he is absurdly versatile in that he's successful in, in pretty much anything he steps into. And he does have a knack of winning Audi a championship as they're heading out the door. He did it in DTM. Uh, I think he still ch stands a chance of doing it again here in Formula E. And um, Edo Mortara went into the weekend leading the championship. He he went out after two zero-pointers, um, fourth in the championship, which still not bad and he, he's he's only nine points off um the lead but but uh he had a bad weekend obviously and it it seems like with with mortara he he seems to get involved in a lot of not a lot but um a few low percentage incidents every season that, um, where maybe he goes for a pass or he goes for a gap that might be there but he doesn't necessarily need to do it there is that just a bit of red mist, do you think, from Mr. Macau? And um, would you suggest that he is still in the title hunt, or was that something of a blip last time around? I'd say he's still in the title hunt. It's, it's You see it often with people who take the championship lead for the first time after a round, the next round, they end up in Group 1, they end up in the middle of the field, and it's sort of... Uh, I wouldn't say against type, but it's sort of when you're leading a championship, you assume that you're going to be performing uh, better for every weekend afterwards, and you kind of end up in a situation where you're fighting against a current. Some people kind of learn to adjust to it, and other people have this blip moment where fighting against the current puts them in the rocks. Yeah, and um, it's also notable that uh, DS Tachita's drivers uh, man managed to score some decent points um, across the New York City weekend as well. Um, obviously, obviously, Vern got second in the uh, first race, but then in the uh, second race, Antonio Felix da Costa managed to get himself back into the title hunt as well with, with third. Obviously, they're, they're two of the most experienced drivers in Formula E, and they're with the triple champion team, DS Tachita. Um, we, we've already talked about the, the randomization of Formula E and the fact that it's very difficult to get consistency, but clearly they've found a way over many years of doing that over at DS Tachita, and um, both of those drivers seem to be able to grind out a result and se seem to be able to come out of even a patchy weekend. Um in in credit if you like um is that just down to experience or is there something in their driving that we can highlight that they're doing that other, other people are not well i i'd say well race one wouldn't be the best example of this but i'd say in formula e you do i'd say 
most, if not every driver gets the opportunity to get a breakout result at some point during the season. And the best drivers maximize that result when they have the opportunity. Uh, in other motorsport series, I'd say championships are based off of uh, how well you perform during your worst weekend. I'd say Formula E is the exact opposite, where it's how well do you f perform during your best weekends. Very true. And uh, talking of best weekends, Sam Bird is uh, Sam Bird was not many people's pick to be back on top of the title race after New York. Uh, he had a couple of no scores in the previous race, and um, it looked very much like a. Um, I'm I'm going to sound a bit malignant when I say this. Um, a, a bit of a uh, typical Sam Bird season where he starts well with a couple of great results and um, then tails off and uh, gets involved in lots of incidents in the midfield. But he's really clawed it back. And um, especially when you consider that, well, so he was he was being interviewed in an England shirt um, at the end of the race, <laughs> at the end of race two, because obviously it was the Euros final after that. And I'd say Sam Bird and the England football team, or at least historically the England football team, share a lot of traits. I mean, they both um, have a lot of talent and they both make life extremely difficult for themselves at times in the competition. Um, he crashed in first practice and usually on a double header when a driver crashes in first practice, that's kind of it for their weekend because they just can't claw back the development minutes that they need. But... Bird seemed to in the in the second race, and obviously he got ninth in the first race, which was pretty much all he could hope for, and he did fantastically well there. But then he got that great win in the second race, backed up ably by, um, as someone said, the new Valtteri Bottas, Mitch Evans, um, <laughs> and um, yeah, he looked jubilant at the end of that. So, um, would you class Sam Bird as the favourite for the title or as a serious contender? And um, what does he need to do now to ensure that he is in the box seats at the end of Berlin as well as uh, right now? Oh, I I wouldn't call him the favorite just based on how how closely compact the driver's standing is. But if I was Sam Bird and I really wanted to win this championship, you have to ensure that you, I'd say, finish in the top five at all the remaining races if you can. If you can, if you can score ten points in every race to the end of the season, you're probably going to either finish first or second in the championship. And uh, if you throw a win in there and score a point. In a, and score at least 10 points in every other race, that is the championship. That's one of the thoroughly exciting things about Formula E. You you do get um, breakout drivers who um, will come to the top of the standings almost almost by stealth. Now, Sam Bird is a dramatic driver to look at uh, on the track. He's a dramatic driver in interviews. Um, he... he he uh, lets his emotions. He wears his emotions on his sleeve, and I think everyone who, everyone who likes him, likes him for that. Um, but uh, he certainly wasn't the preseason title favourite, like like you alluded there. Um, the preseason title favourites for many people were Mercedes, who had another very poor weekend. What's going wrong for Mercedes? It's hard to say what is wrong, but it's clear that something is wrong. Yeah, and um, it's 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 odd because um, um, at this point last season, obviously we just we just come out of the lengthy COVID shutdown, and there were the six rounds in Berlin, and they really hit the ground running there. It it seemed like they'd spent uh, every minute of that shutdown uh, developing the car remotely as 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 well as possible, and it was it was teams like Jaguar that see, that seemed to be falling behind um in the development race uh this season obviously we we've had a relatively full calendar with with a couple of cancellations and um it's not been quite so smooth sailing um at at the business end of the season for them um we can obviously look to next season and we can say that they'll that they'll definitely be favorites for that but um do you think this will have any bearing at all on 
the decision that's still being made on their side as to whether to commit to the Gen 3 rules era or not? I think it might have some effect, but there are so many moving parts about uh, how much their commitment to Formula 1 is going to be, uh, whether they're going to commit to any other motorsports uh, categories. It is... A lot of moving parts, but uh, their lack of success is not helping their case. Yeah, and um, I, I think as well, and it, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, for a major manufacturer, the bottom line is um, motorsport is a marketing activity, and how many how many cars can we sell to um, in in major markets as a result of it? And um, I think the hope for all of the manufacturers was that they would sell more electric vehicles as a result of Formula E. But I think that there are some cases, potentially the Mercedes EQ road range, where the success on the track is not necessarily directly equating itself to sales on Monday, as it were. Yeah, a lot. I would definitely say that is the case, where I... I somewhat lean in the direction that uh, Formula E is not going to convince someone to buy an electric car. Though, Formula E could convince someone who's going to buy an electric car to buy one specific brand over another brand of electric car. Yeah, it's it's not necessarily a value proposition for electric vehicles because the Formula E car is so different to a road electric vehicle, and in terms of the way it's it's meant to operate. Um, I mean, Formula E cars are designed to go as quickly as consistently as possible, forty five minutes. Uh, electric vehicles are designed to go, you know, uh, more than three hundred kilometers without being recharged potentially. So it's a different proposition, but do you think that's why maybe some manufacturers are struggling to uh, win on Saturday, sell on Monday? Uh, I wouldn't say that's the case. I would say it is uh, the formally doesn't have uh, a large, uh, <laughs> doesn't have as large of an audience that they wish they would ha could have, where it's it, like we clearly don't see any correlation between uh ds to success over recent years and an uptick in sales for the ds brand it's it's something where where not even the successful teams are seeing uh a return on investment so to speak yeah, that, that's an interesting point, and um, I, I did actually write about DS and Tachita and uh, w what exactly DS were hoping to get out of the, the relationship, because um, DS, the, the manufacturer, has committed to supplying powertrains to the Gen 3 cars, which is great news, but uh, there is, and I was going to cover it later, but let's cover it now, um, there is a question mark, albeit a small question mark, over um, whether or not Tachita will be there next season um, and um, in, in what shape it will be. So um, the owners, Seeker, uh, the Chinese consortium, are looking to sell part or all of the team. Um, they feel confident that they will do that, but um, Jean-Éric Fern has given interviews recently where he's said um, he's not sure what's going to happen next season and he's focusing on his driving, which always brings up alarm bells, really, for a journalist or a fan when, when you hear someone saying they're just focusing on their driving or they're just focusing on, on, um, on what happens on the pitch because um, it always indicates that there's something something happening off the pitch or off the track that they don't want to talk about. Yes, because it definitely implies that, like, oh, there's something that is distracting you. Uh, it's, it's. I'd say it would be very worrying for not only, obviously, everyone who is employed by Tachita, but I'd say the series as a whole. It is, uh, Tachita is uh, one of the brands that is closely associated with Formula E, and it's probably... Uh, its most iconic success story where kind of 
the the gold and black of Tachita is associated with Formula E the same way that the silver Mercedes is associated with Formula One. Uh, it's it's become a, a cornerstone of the series, and it would it would definitely be a detriment to the series if Tachita were to not compete anymore. And it's always struck me as odd how... Um, okay, so Antonio Felix da Costa, um, we can kind of put a pin in him because uh, he's contracted to to Chita, the team, not to DS. But Jean-Éric Verne is very much a uh, Peugeot, Peugeot Citroën DS uh, factory driver. And um, he also has a slight financial interest in uh, Tachita, the team as well, has done since since he was uh, first part of it. So why don't we see Jean-Éric Verne in, and maybe there is in France, but I, n- I never see any advertising where Jean-Éric Verne is standing next to a DS uh, electric car or plug-in hybrid um, or is, is driving it in a YouTube commercial or something. And I just wonder how they can have so much success and seemingly not try harder to capitalize on it because you know the the amount of success that ds has had in formula e with tachita it's got to have outweighed any expectation they might have had when they started backing the team yeah it is a bit surreal where it's something that you normally see in the automotive industry no matter how small the championship is where here in the United States uh, in most of Acura's ads they they heavily they heavily reference the fact that they're that they've won the last two IMSA championships in, in, in Daytona Prototype International and they've won this year's Daytona 24 Hours like to, to most uh <laughs> The the average American does not know what, what IMSA or the Daytona 24 is, but they see it as somewhat a mark of uh, performance prestige. Yeah, and it's it's a real question, obviously. But uh, um, in in your view, uh, what does Formula E need to do to uh, become a formula that is? Don't want to say more useful, but um, presents presents more of a marketing value proposition for the people in suits because um, it's it has great racing, it has great locations, and um, it it has I think generally very very good uh, television coverage, albeit uh, doesn't always get to all the markets all the time the way that uh, maybe it's intended to. Hello, BBC Red Button. Um, what does it need to do? Is there is there some kind of silver bullet that would help it? Uh, it's it's. I'd say, while not being a a true silver bullet, it's something that you hear a lot about here in the United States. Uh, the National Football League talks about it a lot, and uh, Roger Penske has brought this line of thinking to IndyCar, where it's not about ownership; it's about stewardship. Sometimes the best decision for a, a championship is is not the most financially practical one. Where, say, thinking about television contracts, sometimes the the best TV broadcaster to go with is not the one who's going to give you the biggest check. It's the one that's going to get you in front of the most fans. And... It's something that you could say about Formula E and Formula One, where uh, while big TV contracts are obviously very lucrative financially, it'll hurt you in the long term if you're cutting your product off from a segment of your fan base or potential fans, where you want to be easily accessible so you could get the most fans possible. And I, I know you, I mean, you're um, even more of a, uh, far more of a motorsport history geek than I am. I mean, uh, um, you've, you've written 26 uh, part Twitter threads on the first, on, on the first ever Grand Prix at the start of the 20th century. So um, you're definitely the person I would ask this question to. 
Um, it seems like with the FIA, uh, they they have always been set up to create different forms, or sorry, to to endorse various various forms of motorsport and provide a fairly uniform level of safety standard and uh, track safety standard. But then they allow the forms of motorsport to compete against each other. Um, this was maybe much more the case in the Bernie Eccleston era, in my opinion. Um, but even so, these days, uh, like you you have. Broadly speaking, Formula One and sports car racing and Formula E competing for the same casual fans who don't necessarily care what powers the engine and which drivers are where and just want to see good racing in the afternoon at the weekend. And um, I feel like if if they if they were to bring together the forms of motorsport on a premium streaming service, people would pay huge amounts of money to watch that so i would be very happy to pay a subscription to watch um to a working service that shows f1 streaming but also shows WEC streaming shows uh formula e and maybe world rally championship um i i would potentially be willing to pay you know 50 euros a month 100 euros a month to watch that um if if they gave me all the camera angles and driver interviews etc it seems to me that the FIA is part of the reason why that never actually happens. What do you think? Uh, I'd say it. I'd say partly it's it's out of the FIA's control. Cause uh, like to make a brief comparison to uh, two-wheeled motorsport, where uh, MotoGP has their own streaming service called Video Pass, and you also get access to. Uh, World Superbikes version of Video Pass as well under the same subscription. That's mainly because they have the same rights holder. Dorna owns the the rights to MotoGP as well as the World Superbike Championship. So there's so it's in their best interest that they have it under one streaming subscription. I I'd say the issue for the FIA here with their various championships is that it's they're all under completely different commercial ownerships. And that kind of traces back to uh, a legacy of one, the FIA not uh, the FIA initially having a stance of not caring about commercial rights and television broadcast to uh, the next point in the relationship once they started getting profitable under Bernie Ecclestone, and he only had uh, he didn't have true perpetual ownership it was under a lease that he had to renew and by the time uh it needed to be renewed and the fia wanted to take back ownership that they couldn't because it violated eu antitrust laws i see um so actually the the eu competition laws which are broadly speaking created in good faith and have good foundations have have actually brought about a situation where potentially it's worse for the viewer yes and other motorsports like other uh sporting bodies have gotten around these antitrust laws so uh fifa did so like fifa still owns the the rights the the commercial rights of the world cup uh they did so by just simply moving to switzerland uh i don't <laughs> One of the things about the FIA is they they care a lot about their organizational history. They they feel it as a mark of prestige that they remain in Paris, so they remain in Paris. Yes, indeed, and uh, the, the the FIA anywhere else uh, would would seem quite different. I think um, so. So somehow I've I've still got burnt into my brain those hearings in Place de la Concorde with uh, Michael Schumacher and Damon Hill going back to the nineteen nineteen nineties. But uh, yeah, anyway, so um, we've talked about Tachita, we've talked about Gen 3. Another question I wanted to ask you, because it was one of the big surprise transfers, maybe the, maybe the, ma- the major big surprise transfer of this season. Oliver Oland um, se- seemed to leave Nissan Edams of, or seemed to announce he was leaving Nissan Edams of his own volition at the end of this season uh, to take up a new challenge at Mahindra. Now, um, the the idea that he might wish to uh, leave Nissan Edams wasn't that controversial, given that um, 
they're they're hard they're hardly um winning every race at the moment but also he was being paid a fraction of his much more famous teammate Sebastian Buemi's salary um this goes back to when he joined the team um he was uh, a late replacement for Alex Albon who got the Formula One drive with Toro Rosso and um he was given a young driver's salary effectively by by Dams at the time and that's pretty much stayed on a very similar level ever since, which I, I think he's looking to obviously get the paycheck that he's due. But did it come as, as a surprise to you that he might move to Mahindra for that paycheck, given that uh, presumably there were many teams after him? Uh, I, to me, it's not particularly surprising because to say for Oliver Roland, I don't know why he exactly why he, he would want to leave uh, Nissan Edams, but uh, in terms of teams to go to, uh, Mahindra is, I would say, one of the safer teams to go to, as you know Mahindra is committed to Formula E. You know they're going to be around for for a long time in this championship. And uh, if I recall, uh, Oliver Rowland did drive for Mahindra before, but it was a, as a one-off substitute. Yeah, and um, p- perhaps crucially, uh, I, I see him as a kind of modern analogue to Nigel Mansell. Uh, in, in, ter- in terms of, um, he seems to be that kind of personality who um, is willing to accept a bit of toughness from his, from his team bosses is 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 willing is willing to uh give it back and is is also willing to go toe to toe with anyone on on the track i i think that's the kind of personality that seems to prosper at mahindra so pascal verline famously quite a sensitive personality who seems to in seems to enjoy being in a kind of a arm around the shoulder relationship with with his team um, Felix Rosenquist, not so much, and you could argue that's why he's prospered at both Mahindra and, you know, in some way in IndyCar since then. Um, w- would you say Oliver Rowland is cut from a similar cloth to, f- cloth to Felix Rosenquist in terms of the way he approaches the race weekend? I'd say in some ways, yes, where uh, they definitely have an attitude where... They, I wouldn't say a, a consummate professional, but they're they're there to work, and they they know this, and they're willing to put in the effort in to get the result, no matter what. The uh, problem with this for those of us on Alex Lynn watch, which is well, um, anyone with a pulse, frankly, um, is that. Uh, <laughs> is that uh, Alexander Sims was was only signed at the beginning of this season. And even though he is, uh, I would say, on balance, the slightly slower and slightly less consistent of the two Mahindra drivers, um, that probably says that he's staying and Alex Lynn is on his way, which seems deeply unfair, given that uh, the guy hasn't had two full seasons with the same team yet in Formula E. Yeah, it's, it's that situation where... What I like, I said earlier, where besides you know, we're at the crossover point of the season where it's either you're gonna adapt to Formula E or or never. It's also that point where teams start you know looking inward, seeing what they could change for next year, and the first thing that they look to is could we get an upgrade on drivers, and it, it, it seems like. Always in that case, Alex Lynn is somewhat deemed as replacement level. And it, it's sad, really, because obviously this is a guy who was uh, well thought of in his junior career. He got into the Williams Driver Academy and um, did, did, did tremendously well. He was also backed by the Racing Steps Foundation, so uh, d- didn't come from a uh, hugely uh, um, wealthy background unlike some drivers it, it's just a shame that he's always on the cusp of a drive he, he's always being considered as a mid-season replacement because you, you feel that if he got a couple of full seasons under his belt he would be an asset to any team or at least I feel that way um am I overhyping him somewhat or is he is he as good as I'm saying do you think uh I I definitely think that he's a driver that 
should be safely in formula every every season i i i don't think alex lynn is gonna be uh, a championship contender anytime soon but he's definitely one of those upper mid-tier drivers that should be around for a decade and of course he's one of the drivers who is totally dialed in when it when it comes to qualifying as well he was pulling off some miraculous results um, earlier in the season and generally more often than not getting the Mahindra into Super Bowl uh, when perhaps it didn't always deserve to on overall pace. Um, so it would be a shame if he if he were the one to be jettisoned, but obviously there are never enough drives on the grid for all the drivers that we like, and this is an unfortunate thing about motorsport, isn't it? Yeah, it is unfortunate. Uh, and it's, it's hard to say if we will get another new manufacturer in the Formula E soon, though it's, I'd say, unlike other categories, uh, it's, when you, when you get bounced out of a Formula E seat, you're never truly out until a couple years down the road. You can always get a development drive and find your way back in. At a later in a in a later season. Uh, talking of new manufacturers, uh, it, it's it's been circulated on the race and a couple of other websites that um, that uh, boutique American uh, electric vehicle manufacturer Lucid Motors might be attempting to get into Formula E. We we quite often hear about uh, small manufacturers looking to come into Formula E, and quite often it comes to nothing. There was an Italian manufacturer a couple of seasons ago that was also supposedly doing a feasibility study. Obviously, McLaren further down the line would would like to come into Gen Three. Uh, Zach Brown has said that. But um, what credence do you give to the possibility of Lucid Motors coming in, given that they're already involved in the stock part supply for Formula E? Um, I, 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 I think there's a chance because, uh, again, people are considering McLaren as a possible team entry and they were involved in the stock, uh, in the stock, uh, part supply for formerly, um, it's, I, I don't know how, uh, viable lucid entering formerly is. I maybe with a partnership with an existing team, uh, though it could just you know go go the same way as Faraday Futures uh, venture into Formula E. Yeah, um, th- there are there are people who say that then that, that that they aren't another Faraday Future. But uh, for, for those who don't remember, Faraday Future were the uh, powertrain partners with Dragon Racing uh, for a time in the Gen One era, but. Uh, um, they're another one of those uh, small-time manufacturers, Faraday Future, who come up every couple of years with uh, new model news, and then uh, that's usually the last we hear of it. Um, but yeah, obviously, electric vehicles is a place where boutique manufacturers do pop up. But uh, the question I would have is, what kind of a budget are you going to need for Formula E? I mean. McLaren, you can see them finding the backing because because of who partly owns McLaren. It's uh, it's uh, large Gulf state um, um, actors. Whereas you know, for a smaller company such as Lucid, or to take an example out the air, Rimac. Um, well, Rimac's just formed a company with Bugatti, but you couldn't see them getting into Formula E just because of the costs of starting up a team. So. It's difficult for me to see. I don't know. I don't know how you feel. Are we ever going? Are we ever going to see small manufacturers uh, such as Faraday Future or its like coming back onto the grid, or is it always going to be a, a large OEM formula from now on? I, we could. I think uh, a large issue with uh, that I have with that I had with Faraday Future, and I currently have with Lucid, is that. Uh, motorsport is not just a one-time initial capital investment. It is, uh, it is ongoing. Fi- it is an ongoing financial commitment. And as it stands right now, uh, Lucid does not have uh, any production models available for purchase, and they don't have uh, 
a consistent stream of revenue at the moment. Once they get past that hurdle, I can definitely see them getting into Formula E. It is, it is sort of that's what I would boil it down to. If if you're selling cars, you can you have the finances of being for in to be into in Formula E. If you don't, uh, it's pretty much a pipe dream. Well, so let's let's move on. Let's finish off with some calendar talk because it, it's always fun when the Formula E calendar comes out, and um, it's 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 been announced, I think, slightly early this year, maybe to try and build up some interest. But uh, it's it's just great to look at this calendar and to hope that uh, you know at, at least most of these countries are over the hump with COVID, and that we that we might have a um, a fairly consistent uh, bill of races for the next season. But uh, starts again with Diria in Saudi Arabia in uh, January on the twenty eighth and 29th. Then we've got uh, Mexico City on February the twelfth. Cape Town is a new race on February 26th. Um, how excited are you to go to South Africa with Formula E? Uh, it, it should be uh, a fun, interesting event. Uh, I've, I've been to Cape Town. It is, it is definitely all the qualities that Formula E looks for in terms of uh, pict- picturesque landscape, which they mentioned many times in the press conference. Yeah, um, and uh, obviously it would be fantastic to go there. And um, from from a time zone point of view, Cape Town makes perfect sense with uh, the UK and Europe because it's 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 on the same time zone. I think the um, sadness that I have is that obviously if they have that as the African market race, it's unlikely that we will see Marrakesh in the near future because Morocco is a smaller market than South Africa. And that's obviously um, what they're aiming for. But do you have a sadness that uh, these these races that have served Formula E well, such as Marrakesh, are unlikely to find a space on the calendar in the near future? I think... uh... They they talked about it in the the scheduling press conference where uh, they definitely see Formula E being a seventeen or eighteen round championship with probably eliminating some of the double headers as well. So we could see Marrakesh come back. They've been uh, Alberto Longo uh, was was very vocal about wanting uh, South America to return, where due to issues ongoing issues with uh chile uh which is is why we don't have santiago chile on on the schedule uh it's they're definitely looking to return to (laughs) return to previously raced in markets while also expanding because there's clear room to expand the calendar there is a race to be confirmed in China on March the 19th. Um, yeah. Possibly Sanya, possibly a new um, race elsewhere. Uh, Rome after that, which which we all know and love um, in the EUR district on April the 9th. Monaco, April the 30th. And it, it looks like Monaco is going to be an annual fixture on the calendar now, not a biannual fixture, which uh, I think based on the quality of this race on the full F1 circuit, I'm quite glad about it. Are you glad about that? Yes, uh, and uh, formerly have been very, very glad about uh, Monaco becoming an annual fixture. It is uh, something that they definitely hold up as being uh, one of, if not the prestige round for the championship. Uh, after that, Berlin... Uh, receives an earlier slot. It's going to be on May the 14th. Uh, then there's a race to be confirmed on June the 4th. Some chatter about Jakarta, some chatter about other um, cities. The the chief championship officer, uh, Alberto Longo, pretty much, uh, he said he can't officially confirm it, but he's going to confirm it that the TBA round is Jakarta, Indonesia. <laughs> Well, obviously that's that's good news from a uh, market's point of view because uh, we, um, we we didn't have any Formula E races in Asia this season for obvious reasons. So, uh, and uh, the, the the Indonesian market is is a huge one. So, um, good news. Um, also, Jakarta is one of those cities that is most threatened by climate change. So they can they can hopefully do some good work while they're over there. Um, 
Vancouver in Canada, which is a city that um, old-time IndyCar uh, fans will know and love from watching the street race there. You think Formula E is going to have the same atmosphere that that great street race in Vancouver used to have with IndyCar? It'll be hard to say, though I'd say uh, in terms of an ideal market for Formula E, in terms of a part of the world that is very climate-aware and also very much a sport-loving part of the world. You couldn't pick a better place in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Exactly. After that, you've got the two races in New York, uh, June 16th and 17th, the two races in London, July 30th and 31st. Um, obviously, this is all provisional. And then finally, a race that I'm very excited about because... Um, I'm just a huge fan of um, the food, the culture, the K-pop, that kind of thing, is uh, two races, August 13th and 14th, to round off the season in Seoul, um, uh, South Korea. So this is pretty exciting, and obviously Formula E were gearing up for this. They signed a deal to, um, uh, to have BTS, the boy band, as ambassadors a couple of years ago. That race didn't work out because of COVID-19. They finally got that race. How excited are you about Formula E finally getting to South Korea? Uh, I, I, It is definitely going to be very exciting. It is going to be... Uh, Formula E does not do boring with the season finales. And Seoul, South Korea is definitely one of the places to have it. It's probably one of the places in the world where uh, South Korea specifically, that has had such a massive impact on the automotive industry, but has had next to no impact in terms of motorsport, besides that brief foray of hosting a, a Formula One Grand Prix. But I think uh, this time it's going to stick. And if, if you're looking around at potential manufacturers, potential enormous manufacturers for the future, then um, it, it's it's actually a wonder that Hyundai and Kia haven't got involved so far. And you, you would have to say that a race in Seoul would be that spur to finally get them to make a decision on it, wouldn't it? Yes, that if, if either Kia or Hyundai get involved, it would be a massive gain for the sport because... For either manufacturer, it would be the largest championship they compete in. And for Formula E, where you have manufacturers with various commitments to a wide array of championships, uh, if I recall, Hyundai's biggest commitment outside of this is uh, TCR and ETCR. And... Them entering Formula E, Formula E would be their primary focus, which is great news from a marketing sense for, for the championship because Hyundai would have no choice but to heavily promote Formula E in their, in their marketing materials. And I, th I think, uh, possibly quite rightly, the, the Hyundai board has always been reticent about talking about Formula One as a possibility, and I'm, I'm not sure that the kind of budget needed to do well in F1 is necessarily something that Hyundai in its current shape would be willing to spend. But obviously you can do well in Formula E for a fraction of that cost. So it just seems like a perfect fit for a company like Hyundai that already has a rallying commitment and a touring car commitment. Yes, where it is definitely on uh, a scale of budget that they're willing to work with and no matter how long the commitment is, it's something that they know that they would be reliably able to cover. It's not, uh, again, it's not Formula One where you have to commit for uh, at least half a decade and to be competitive, you have to spend at least $100 million. So that's immediately half a billion dollars tied up into a venture that you don't even know if you're going to be successful in. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for giving your time to this, uh, Ryan. And um, obviously, you're a presenter on Motorsport 101. Um, tell us where we can find Motorsport 101 and uh, what people can expect if they subscribe to you through Patreon as well. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, you can find us at motorsport101.com. Uh, on the website, we do have links to our Patreon and uh, a 
our YouTube channel and our subscription feed and our uh, Twitter uh, our, our Twitter account all in one convenient location. And if you do, if you do subscribe to us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast live as, as it's being recorded, where we do discuss Formula E as well as uh, MotoGP, uh, Formula One, IndyCar, uh, occasionally Formula Two. And uh, you do also get to participate. Uh, you, do, you do also get to join our Discord server where we uh, definitely have our fair share of shenanigans. Absolutely. Um, I'm on there quite regularly and it's, it's always fun and has kept me sane on many Sunday afternoons. So uh, uh, th- thank you for the great service that uh, all of you do over there. It's, it's, it's really a pleasure to, um, to, to join you in that um, um, when, when, you're, when you're having discussions. Um, so thank you again, Ryan. And um, thank you to everyone who listened to this. And uh, we'll be back with something quite different but also quite similar very soon um all the best and uh, bye bye